0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin Lagore, and welcome to the Skywatcher What's Up webcast where we check out everything that's up in the nighttime sky, to observing and imaging tips, to basically anything we really feel like talking about because it's our webcast anyway. Um, so, uh, welcome. Um, if this is your first time uh, joining us, uh, my name is Kevin Lagore. I'm the product specialist for Skywatcher here in North America. Um, And the What's Up webcast uh, takes place every Friday, uh, 10 a.m. Pacific time. Now that the time has changed, keep that in mind. Um, So we do this every Friday, um, do a different topic every week. And at at the end of the month, we do a special guest. Now, I'm sure some of you are asking, it's not the end of the month. Well, there's no What's Up webcast next week because it's Thanksgiving and we're closed. So Just a reminder, there's no What's Up webcast next week, um, but we'll be back after um, the first week of December. Um, But um, thanks for joining us if this is your first time. If you're joining us again, uh, welcome. And if you've missed it or you want to go back and watch it, all of the What's Up webcast episodes are available at the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel um, where you can check out All the previous episodes if there's something you want to see Um, and then of course as with any YouTube channel uh, if you want to keep an eye on what we're doing or future episodes you can subscribe to the channel that'll keep you notified of any new content that's coming up I know that's a super YouTube kind of thing but that's how it works Um, so anyway Today we have a really good friend of mine and special guest. His name is Alan Strauss. He is from the University of Arizona's Mount Lemmon Sky Center and he's going to be on telling us what they do up there, uh, how they do outreach and you know all kinds of things that the Sky Center does uh, out there in Tucson, Arizona. So uh, without further ado I'm going to drag Alan in here and we will uh, get this going. If you have any questions just uh, save save that to the end we'll save like the last 10-15 minutes um of the hour we'll save for that so if you can keep your questions for alan uh, until then that'll be great so without further ado uh alan uh welcome on to the webcast thanks for spending your morning with us
1: oh I'm glad to be here
0: um so i always start the webcast off pretty much the same way with everybody is how did you get started in this crazy hobby of astronomy? Because we all have a a story. Oh,
1: yeah, for sure. Um, So uh, growing up, I was, So I live in Tucson, Arizona. I guess I should mention that and work at the University of Arizona. And I grew up here. And when I was very young, I was very, very close with my grandparents. And my grandfather had a very close friend whose name was uh, Dr. Leon Blitzer. And uh, Dr. Blitzer, I knew him as Leon, was a professor of physics at the University of Arizona. And what I didn't know at the time is that he was uh, world famous, world renowned, and was the leading expert on solar system dynamics. And in the, I think, uh, early 1950s, he became the youngest person to ever achieve the rank of full professor at the university. And he started the PhD programs in physics and just an amazing guy and a good friend of my grandfather. And so when I was uh, a little tyke in the early 70s, uh, he would come over for dinner and things and bring me these really cool NASA lithographs of Jupiter and things that the Voyager probes were imaging. And as you can imagine, they look nothing like the the nebula behind me right now. Uh, And so it sparked my interest. And then at some point, probably a birthday, my uh, parents bought me a, a small telescope and I laughed thinking back on that, because we would haul this thing up a rickety ladder to the roof, uh, having waited till full moon, right? <laughs> when The only thing you can really see in the sky is the full moon. Uh, very few details, uh, didn't know how to align the finder. We'd spend, you know, hours keeping this telescope pointed at the moon. And every time a car would drive by, we'd be covering our eyes, thinking that we were protecting our night vision from from this bright thing. So, you know, it, it's come a long way. But growing up in Tucson, uh, it was really the epicenter of of astronomy in the '70s and '80s, at least we like to think so. Kitt Peak is very nearby, and university, and so just lots of opportunities to interact with other amateur astronomers and the university. It, it was just kind of a natural fit and growth into the hobby.
0: Nice, yeah. I I know we've served a lot, and I've seen over the years we've spent a lot of time out under the sky, whether it's you know, outreach events or just viewing. So I. always cool to see everyone's story of how they got to interested in this hobby um so at that point you know it's cool you're interested you got telescope um at what point though does because obviously now you're the director of sky center uh, a full observatory complex so at what point does your because i i know you've been into it obviously for a long time but at what point does that shift from amateur hour to where you finally step into pro level
1: yeah so you know life's a journey um, and and uh, I still consider myself an amateur astronomer not just at heart but in practice you know I, I still go out as you know and I've seen you in places right and with my personal telescope and my background my educational background is in education I, I got my uh, two degrees from the College of Education at, at the University of Arizona and was working at the university for a long time and then when they started the mountain lemon sky center uh, around 2008 2009 i started volunteering up there leading astronomical outreach programs for the very fledgling program and then was quickly hired because they went from a staff of one to a staff of one and a guy helping the one and as those programs grew uh, within about two years there was an opening they needed an administrator and so uh, after 17 years and one job at the university, I managed to leverage my administrative experience with my passion for amateur astronomy and, and get the job. And, uh, I think everybody took a risk, myself making a career change, the department head of astronomy, bringing in a guy that had no formal training in astronomy. I've never taken an astronomy class. And it's been great. I mean, it's been a solid decade of, of good times and, and really seeing some amazing changes in the world of outreach.
0: So I, I guess I should have asked this first, but because I'm so familiar with it, but others might not be. Can you tell people what the Mount Lemmon Sky Center like actually is? I know it's sure. a big thing in Tucson, but, you know.
1: Right. So, so the Department of Astronomy, of course, has a very long history uh, in astronomy at the University of Arizona. It was started in the very early 1900s by A.E. Douglas, uh, and uh, it was not until uh, around 2007 that the Department of Astronomy really started focusing in on a kind of a nightly astronomical outreach program. So the Sky Center was founded by my colleague, Adam Block, who had this vision for what the university could do, and the kind of heart and soul of it are these public observing programs. So it's a five-hour program in advance, unfortunately, COVID has, of course, stopped that for now. Uh, But people come up and we spend a couple hours during the daytime orienting orienting them to the site, to the telescope, showing them some things that they can only see in the daytime, right? The sun, uh, sometimes a bright star, maybe Venus or Mercury, just get them comfortable. Uh, We have a nice dinner and a lecture. We watch sunset. And then we spend a couple hours at the telescope after dark, seeing things uh, like this nebula behind me. Of course, not in vivid color like that. Uh, and the telescopes that we use, we have two telescopes. One is a 0.8 meter, 32 inch, the Schulman telescope, and then a 0.6 meter, 24 inch Phillips telescope. And, you know, the programs are really, uh, they're for all ages. We, you know, we get, uh, kids down as young as about seven who, who have never done anything like this to, uh, retired PhD astronomers in their 70s, and the program meets all of their needs and expectations. It's, it's a lot of fun. I think that primarily what we try to do is help people appreciate at the end of the day that science matters. That's what we're after, and, and that if we can take all of the wonder and excitement that they have when they show up and help them understand just a little bit about what they're seeing in the telescope, that they go home with, with such an increased sense of, of wonder and excitement and amazement, and for many people, it's it's the first step. I'm sure Skywatcher has seen, you know, lots of sales increase during COVID times, right? People oh, yeah. are getting back, getting back into uh, understanding what's going on above them. And, and I think that, um, sorry, I could talk about this all day, right? <laughs> is that... We've got times. That's right. What One of the things that's so great about, you know, astronomy outreach and about our, our program is that, you know, we bring these concepts home. People don't have to understand much about physics or black holes or radio waves or any of these concepts, right? There are things that everybody can grasp. And, and they go home with a sense of, hey, you know, this stuff's not out of my reach. I think astronomy has too often been perceived as something you know, very mysterious, you know, only for the most highly intelligent of people. And and I think what we show people is that, you know, you can understand this, right? And, and your understanding can be at whatever level you're willing to to delve into this. So, it's been very rewarding for me. It's been a lot of fun. You know, I, I threw this picture of the uh, Triffid Nebula up behind me. This was a picture uh, that Adam Block, my colleague, astrophotographer, created. One, because it's a really cool background, but as an example of the very type, various types of outreach we do, it's not just that we deliver these in-person experiences, right? We, we generate a lot of very beautiful uh, pictures of things up there, and these pictures, you know, we we show them in person. They go out on the internet through social media, and they generate so many questions. You know, we looking at a picture like this, people ask, well, why is is this side blue, and why is this other side pink, and what about the dark things going through there? And you know, it looks kind of like a cloud. Is it is it going to look like this next year when I come back up to the Sky Center? So there's so many things that that people make, right? And those observations that lead to their questions, that's the scientific process, right? And we ask them what ideas they have, what hypotheses about why why this. And so people begin to see themselves as as being capable of of understanding the science, and it's really exciting, right? The only thing that most people will remember from this nebula is, wow, there are stars being born there, right? But that's pretty cool, that one little thing, to go home and say you've seen that.
0: Yeah, I know you guys have always done a really nice job up there, and it's the programs actually, but then just the last couple of years, I feel like you guys have really advanced that a lot. I It seems like it's, you've gotten more volunteers and more staff and it's growing pretty, expo- obviously this year's kind of an odd year, but it's, it's growing pretty exponentially from what I've seen is, you know, whenever we're out doing events in Tucson, like guys are known for what you do up there, so. Yeah,
1: well, I I appreciate your enthusiasm. Exponentially, maybe, you know, a lot, but it it has grown, right? It's, uh, I guess, in stellar timelines, we're moving pretty fast, but uh, the, uh, yeah, so it's, you know, we we can only serve so many people. We try to keep the experiences intimate, so maybe 35 people a night come up, you know, but we we definitely are doing a lot of of local outreach things uh, from schools to star parties to science fairs, but the other big thing we do up there, um, well, there are several. But we do workshops, so people come up and they can spend the night, and we do things on astrophotography, wide field astrophotography of the Milky Way, astrophotography through the telescopes, and it's it's one hundred and one type workshops. If you've never used your camera, come on up, and we'll we'll show you where the menu is in the camera, and we'll we'll get you going on that front. Two very experienced folks that want to come up and take advantage of the equipment. Uh, we. So we, we would call these things outreach, but we also have formal K-12, kindergarten through 12th grade education programs that we call the U of A Sky School. And so that is uh, not just astronomy, but all of the, the natural sciences that we have access to on the mountain. So it's, it's been a lot of fun to watch it grow and to really become uh, a neat, very unique place for this kind of outreach
0: because i know the sky center for those who don't know the, the sky center is tightly woven into the park service that actually oversees the mountain itself and affects a lot of the environment up there so you guys at events i've seen not just the astronomical side but i've seen other parts of the, the education team that are actually promoting the actual nature of what lives on the mountain too yeah That's right.
1: I mean, we sit, obviously, in the, you know, in the uh, cat's perch of the Santa Catalina Mountains, uh, which is operated, or not operated, it's managed by the U.S. Forest Service. And so we operate the observatory under a a special use permit. Uh, But it's been there since, the observatory's been there since about 1970. Uh, And originally, it was a Cold War military installation. Uh, It was, they say it was the free world's highest altitude radar site. And it was part of a national network for air defense so uh, as uh, the early 70s came, the university began to work with the military and with the forest service to start to repurpose the site for astronomical research. And so uh, much of the original uh, buildings have disappeared, many of them, but there are still a few. There's still one original uh, radar tower. There's no instrument in it. The uh, enlisted men's barracks are still there. The gymnasium is still there. So you know, I can shoot baskets at 9,170 feet.
0: There's a workout. Exactly. Um, so now that the Sky Center's up there, you guys are doing your stuff. I know there's other telescopes on the peak up there, but those are part of I think what's interesting up there is you have the Sky Center, which has their your two your thirty-two and twenty-four um telescopes, but it's kind of woven into basically the there isn't an uh, actual research observatories that are up there as well. And it's all woven into one facility, really.
1: Right, yeah, and, and that's the only way that this would really work for us, right, because uh, astronomy outreach is, is, you know, in the best of times, a tough business, and it's hard to, to support that. But we're very fortunate to be have support from the University of Arizona, and part of that reason it works is because we do sit in the middle of several research telescopes, And it's those telescopes, you know, at the end of the day, which keep the site operating, right? we wouldn't have an observatory like we have without those research telescopes. And so, you know, probably the, the, uh, you know, not everybody would agree with this statement, but the flagship project is called the Catalina Sky Survey. Catalina is the mountain range, the Santa Catalina Mountains. And they're a survey program funded by NASA, and they look for NEOs, near-Earth objects. And specifically, they're looking for asteroids, and, and those asteroids, which we call hazardous, right, the near-Earth ones. And it doesn't mean that they're near-Earth now, but it means that their orbit might take them inside of the Earth's orbit. And so potentially, there could be a future impact risk. And they are the leading program in the world for discovering asteroids. They, they operate two telescopes on our peak, a one-and-a-half meter, a 60-inch, and then a 40-inch, a, a one-meter telescope. And they operate uh, two, well, one telescope full-time uh, on the peak just next to us, a 30-inch Schmidt. And then they also utilize the uh, other one-and-a-half-meter telescope on Mount Lemmon, uh, which is on, or sorry, in the Catalina Mountains, which is on the peak. So sometimes they have four telescopes operating up there, but always three. And they're, they have an amazing camera. It's uh, 10K by 10K, and it, it sees five square degrees of sky. So that's 10 times the full moon right there. Uh, and they detect literally thousands of objects every single night. Most of those asteroids are known, but, you know, on a good night, there are a couple dozen that are new discoveries or more. I should check my facts. Uh, and then, you know, two to three of those are near-Earth asteroids. So... Um, There's nothing that that we know of right now right? that's a potential impactor. Uh, One of the more exciting discoveries recently, uh, and I should have checked the date, but uh, definitely within the last year, was uh, what hit the popular media as Earth's mini-moon. You probably remember that. So that was a small asteroid that that, uh, was discovered up there and that was in the same orbit as the Earth. So they're, they're a lot of fun, um, and, and it's great to have them up there because when the public comes up, they get to learn about that. They get to see it in operation, and people feel like they're they're coming and getting an experience that puts them in touch with cutting-edge research, right? It doesn't happen often. In fact, it's only happened three times in all of human history up there that that they discovered an asteroid, a very small asteroid, that then later impacted the Earth. And all three of the times this has happened in our history, that discovery has happened at Mount Lemmon, through the Catalina Sky Survey. So, you know, it's like winning the outreach lottery, right? Imagine being able to go home and say, I was at Mount Lemmon the night they discovered that asteroid that just landed in the ocean.
0: No, that's, I know it's really cool up there. And I, I really like that your facility blends it that way, because you know uh, i know if you step to the other facilities around the country you know they've got massive telescopes and they've got their little outreach section in there but everything up there is so there's not a lot of room on the mountaintop so everything's yeah. kind of uh, on each other so right. you know but there's
1: tension to that though as well and it is exactly what you're talking about there you know we we could move the outreach telescopes it's a 25 acre site and as we think about the future and plans, you know, we've talked about that. Should we move them lower on the mountain? But what we often come back to is, no, it's, it's really important to bring the public into this research environment, right? These, these things are funded by NASA, by the National Science Foundation. And in a sense, we all own this, right? It's all information. And, and you know, it, it helps for us to also dispel these ideas that, you know, this is a bunch of really smart people playing with really expensive toys, studying some very esoteric thing, right? When they can come up and they can learn about asteroids and understand that, you know, we not only, right, could one of these potentially hit us and we'd like to know about in advance, but also this is maybe how life came to Earth in the past, right? It's not just some esoteric thing. We're trying to understand find answers to bigger questions. Where, where did life come from? How did, how did life get to earth? Is there a relationship, you know, or I should say, what is the relationship between our, our star, the sun, and climate on earth, right? If, if, uh, you know, can we predict the behavior of the sun and maybe, you know, get some warning for future solar storms? So there's lots of big questions that relate very directly to, to our life on earth. And, the more understanding we have about those things, perhaps we can we can improve our station here.
0: Yeah, no, that's it's that's what I like about astronomy, is it definitely brings a lot of people just overshadow it where it's like we're gonna go stargazing. And it's so much more than that. Um, and you I love find, <laughs> Yeah, sorry.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I I love when people come up and they and they start talking to the people that are working there, not just working at the Sky Center, but working at some of the other telescopes, not just Catalina Sky Survey. But um, we, we have University of Florida operates a telescope, Louisville University. We have telescopes from the National Observatory of South Korea, for example. So when our guests just start chatting up some of the, the other staff up there, you know, they're, they're talking to people who have degrees in biology and people that have degrees in geosciences and people that have degrees in planetary sciences, and people like me that have degrees in education, and, you know, all kinds of fields. And I think that that's really important because what they see, you know, is a little bit of themselves up there, right? And it's, it, the connections that happen, that, that's why I work there, right? You, you go home at the end of the day and you feel like, well, A, this is a great job, but B, you know, someone had a really good experience today and that, that's gonna pay itself forward.
0: That's um, something that I think is important for a lot of people because, you know, you and I doing a lot of outreach, you get a lot of questions where it's like, well, how do I become an astronomer? And that's such a, I don't want to say loaded term, but it's such a broad answer because, you know, a lot of people just think, oh, you're an astronomer if you do this. Well, you know, there's so many aspects of making telescopes and these observations work that you know but you start to find out that you don't have to go to school and you just learn this and poof you're an astronomer it's like like you said there's people from all different backgrounds that make these things happen
1: right yeah i mean they've all they've all gone to school but it's you know what it is is it's really that amateur right from the latin about loving something uh, that that drives a lot of the people that are up there we our outreach staff, uh, you know, I love to use the term they moonlight because, you know, these programs are at night. They're not, you know, we've got a staff of a dozen people. They all have other daytime jobs, but they're all up there after working a full day because they love it. Mm. They're they're all amateur astronomers at heart. Now, some of them uh, are engineers, right? One of them is a, a, um, a laser engineer, one is an engineer for adaptive optics at the large binocular telescope observatory. We've had staff that, that do image processing for the Mars high-rise mission. And we've had, we've had, you know, people that are college students that don't even have a major yet that are presenting, but they all have this love for astronomy, for learning, and for sharing and, and for getting people excited about that. Uh, and, and that's really, I think, what makes our, our programs excel. It's it's not that we want to get up there and talk about the equipment, you know. The I mean, equipment's we,
0: the last thing that's right. You know, it comes it. up, but it's it's not. I find when you go out to an outreach event, the equipment comes up, but it's it's kind of it's just the tool in the toolbox to make it work. So. That's right. You know, we, we explain how a telescope works, and then, you know we you know we certainly get the person
1: like myself, like you, who if we were attendees, we'd want to know all the details of how the equipment is. Operating and this and that, but but what we really get excited about is is pushing people to to think about what they're doing, to have fun, and you know I love when I do a program. I love to get the telescope on an object, have a person come up to the eyepiece, and of course the first thing they say is, oh, what am I looking at? What is it? And I don't tell them. I say, well, why don't you describe what you're seeing, right? And then you know I get the next person also to describe, and I and I get them to make the observations and talk to each other about what they're doing. And what it does is it it puts them in charge of that process, right? Mm -hmm. It takes me out of the role of of expert and lets them come up with questions, investigate things, and I'm just there to to facilitate that, right, and to help them come to the right answer, uh, or at least what we believe is the right answer, right?
0: astronomy is one of those great sciences where we seem to learn more and more every week. But lets them kind of discover it for themselves, which I think is what makes it um exciting. Um, because it we obviously know the majority of what we're showing in the telescope has been known for years. It's it's nothing new, but it for someone to discover it for themselves, it really opens that window that we all love and adore. Um but yeah, it's to let them kind of take the reins for themselves and not just be like, here's what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. It, right. Yeah. And,
1: and there's a, a hierarchical progression to it during the night, which is really helpful. You know, you start off looking at a star, you don't just drop a very faint fuzzy galaxy in the eyepiece, right? You, you start with a star and then maybe you go to a, a cluster of stars, um, you know, maybe a bright nebula where stars are being born. And you slowly work your way through these objects Right? And, and then by the time you're showing something a little more unique, the guests have experience. Right? Mm-hmm. They, have, they have the experience of observing, so they know how to look through the eyepiece. Maybe they, they have already figured it out, or we've talked about averted vision, so they have some little techniques to improve their ability to see. They're building those skills up, and then they have the understanding already of, of different things they've seen in the eyepiece, from color to, to shape to brightness, and they can describe those things. And, and then by the time you get to a galaxy, mo- most people can see the galaxy. A lot of them can see features in the galaxy and and they can describe those and get excited about them and talk to each other
0: about them. That's kind of a cool process because I think a lot of people who do outreach don't think about it that way. It's just, you know, I have a line of people or whatever. Just come look, blah, 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 onto the next telescope. And I, I understand that at certain events, that's just kind of a process. Yeah. But when you've got stuff like this um you are literally uh training i guess or telling them how to properly observe something so by the end of the night you could take someone who's never touched a telescope and by the end of the night they they're actually well versed in you know basic observation skills
1: right and and i think too you know like one of the things we often talk about in our presentations that was started by adam at the very beginning was size and scale of the solar system in the galaxy and so you know those are big concepts right and so you you work to create a model that people can get their arms and minds around Uh, but we do that early but then when we go back up to the telescope after dinner when it's dark right then when people start asking you how far away is this they have some sense of of that right Um, you show them a star in the daytime and they and they say how far is that and you say 10 light years that that's a little bit meaningless. In, at that point, but later on in the night, as they've built up this this knowledge through their own inquiry, that means something to them, right? That that vast distance still inconceivable, but they have a, a frame of reference for it. And and I love at the you know towards the end, if we show a galaxy and, and someone says, well, how far away is this galaxy? And it's like, well, this galaxy is you know, 100 million light years away. And then there's this you know pause for a few minutes, and then that same person says, wait a minute. So if that galaxy is, is 100 million light years away, you know, do we know it it still exists? That that question comes up a lot, and it's a great question because what it shows you is, you know, they've been processing and thinking about this stuff, and they've put all of this together, and they realize that wow, it takes a long time, 100 million years for that light to get here. So how do we know? And of course we we talk about that, right? But we to answer their question, we bring it right back to what they already know, and then they realize, hey, I I actually knew the answer to this. And, then, you know, the short version is if a typical star lives 12 billion years or something, right, 100 million years is a very small percentage of, of the lifetime of even a single star. So you take a galaxy of, you know, hundreds of billions of stars, right, that galaxy is, is most certainly still there, right. So, but to see the, you know, the expression on their face and, and their, their confidence uh, and satisfaction as they figure these things out is is absolutely uh, the most rewarding thing I've ever done.
0: It's, it's kind of cool. You kind of give them like a puzzle and throughout the program, the pieces start to be put into place until the end. You know, they finally got a, a better thought right. on the grand picture of it. Yeah, it's, it's a great analogy.
1: And, and it's almost like they, you know, the, whatever that picture is on the puzzle, they, they're kind of determining Right. They're They're picking out as they go what those takeaways are. And again, our takeaway is we want them to go home and think, wow, science is cool and it matters. It helps us understand the world around us. And, and that's our little attempt to brainwash everybody. Because, you know, <laughs> we're not sitting up there you know, lecturing on this like science matters and you're going to remember it, right? No, it's we help them through a process and, and they have fun. And that's the key thing is it's a lot of fun.
0: I think that's the hard part especially in this day and age with just science in general that we're seeing right now is a lot of people are unfortunately hatched from science Um, and it's probably I don't know what the reason behind a lot of it is but I guess certain people don't like that they feel like they might be talking being talked down to or someone's smarter than they are and they don't like that feeling but if you can approach it in the right way and kind of like you guys do put them in the driver's seat essentially and be like look this is this isn't something that's unobtainable like you could just as easily it's not a difficult process to understand it just takes a little bit of effort to and you don't have to take it all in at once I think a lot of people assume with science it's like I got to take all this fact in one gulp and it doesn't make any sense that way where you kind of have to approach it how you guys do where it's just you know, start with the basics and then move up to the advanced stuff. And then you've kind of come to the realization that, oh, well, that wasn't that hard. And now I can kind of grasp this much larger concept.
1: Right. Yeah. I'm sure we could go. And there's probably been a ton of research on that and how we've gotten to this point. And, but certainly my, my opinion is that the availability of information electronically has, has been a double-edged sword. It's wonderful, but you know, we always joke up there, you know, about people, well, I saw it on the internet, right? And so the assumption is it's true. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that's harmful and, and people, I mean, we all do it, right? We pull a device out of our pocket to get an answer to something. And, and in some cases, you know, we, we've lost the appreciation for figuring the answer out. And, and it's tough, you know, it's, it's definitely our, our culture has changed and we just have to be smart consumers of information but not sell ourselves short, right? There, there's a, there's a healthy balance to being skeptical and being, you know, cynical, but, but it's, these things are achievable. And if, if we can help people be curious and and tap into that curiosity and, and see that, you know, there's, there's no inherent conflict between being amazed and, and, you know, wonder, this is stuff is wondrous with the fact that, you know, it's, it's pretty orderly,
0: right? Mm-hmm. There, there's,
1: there's some scientific reasoning behind it and, it, and it's through that orderly process that we're going to understand why, why this nebula is, is pink, right? Or, or why this one's blue, right? What, what's creating those dark lanes, right? We're not, we're not just making it up. We had a theory. We tested those theories, and, and as we continue to collect data, it continues to support those ideas. Hmm. All the results that come in are pretty consistent, that, that this is an area that's
0: giving birth to stars, yeah it's it's, i think it's just important for people to explore science to whatever realm they're comfortable within but i feel like astronomy is one of the easily most uh obtainable sciences where you can actually go high up into the research levels like what you got like it's it's hard to do like an outreach event at like for like chemistry per se where it's like okay we're going to take you and we're going to throw you into this lab and it just that's not as big of a thing where astronomy it's um, you can go out in your backyard and you can explore astronomy right. and start that interest.
1: And, and it's so exciting. I think that it's, you know, when I do the programs, I guarantee, right, if you do any kind of outreach and you're listening to this, before you go to the outreach event, just get on the internet and look up what's happening in astronomy today. Because there are so many exciting things every day, whether it's a new discovery, whether it's a milestone in a mission, whether it's something happening on the space station, whether it's a Galileo's birthday, right? They're, there's so much that, that people can get excited about and, and tap into. You know, I'm, Kevin, you and I are not that old, right? But I mean, just in our lifetimes, we've gone from grainy black and white pictures of Mars taken by uh, you know, space-based um, uh, missions to amateur astronomers right, in their backyard using you know, equipment that's not that expensive, taking much, much better color pictures, I, I've been seeing, I'm sure many of you have, pictures of, of volcanoes on Mars that amateurs are taking over the last month. You know, that that didn't happen. Just the technology advances have been incredible. If you you think back, I don't know, I'll probably get my timeline wrong, but four years ago, five years ago, one of the big things in looking, you know, for the possibility of life was finding water, right? Can we find water on a moon of, of Saturn, or can we find water on, on our moon, or? And now, just about everywhere in the solar system, they look, they're finding water, right? Just because our our understanding has improved and our ability to create better technologies has improved. And I, I often remind people that just 100 years ago, right, there are people alive today who were here in a time when we didn't know that that fuzzy Andromeda thing in the sky was another galaxy, we we called it a, a spiral nebula and, and hubble in the you know early 1900s i think around 1919 or 1920 i should look figured out conclusively that it was another galaxy so well, it's only been 100 years to where we've known that it's not not everything is just right here with us and and it's uh, i always tell youth right this is the golden age of astronomy it, it hasn't passed us by
0: we're, yeah we're just getting to look at some of the telescopes that are getting ready to launch and we're just getting into basically the second generation of space-based tele- like serious space-based telescopes so you know we're just scratching the cer- and the equipment now that you can get you know not touting Skywatcher or anything but the equipment you can get on the amateur market i mean you could do spectroscopy observations of a black hole or a quasar from your backyard with you know an eight inch telescope and a hundred dollar spectrograph it's you know crazy with the stuff that you can actually do now with bare minimum equipment
1: yeah and and it's useful right because you know astronomy uh, research at the highest levels is very very expensive right time on telescopes is hard to come by but we don't need the biggest telescopes all the time so if so if amateurs can harness their collective power and we can put you know multiple telescopes you know six inch telescopes 10 inch telescopes 20 inch telescopes around the world to taking
0: information data on objects that's really helpful to professional astronomers i don't think a lot of people realize that um maybe some of you watching might not understand that either um you know when you're a professional astronomer you have to apply for time on large telescopes and obviously there's only so many telescopes available and there's only so much time and usually like the wait time on these multimeter telescopes are years in advance and you basically have to book time um, and hope you've got good seeing for probably that that window that you're you've got the telescope available and usually that window alan you'd know better than i do that window's not very big i mean you're talking a couple days to a few weeks depending yeah. on the project availability um so the cool thing about amateurs is you have a telescope to your disposal 100 of the time a professional does not have observing time of that caliber on those instruments. So the nice thing, there's plenty of people who are discovering asteroids and comets and supernovas and doing spectral observations all from their backyard equipment because they have way more observing time on their equipment than a professional does. Right. I mean, you know, even,
1: you know, thinking about asteroids, if, if we did detect an asteroid that was inbound towards the Earth, and it's happened three times right, to the word goes out very quickly on a public website, regardless, every asteroid is reported through the Minor Planet Center. And uh, imagine if, you know, quickly we could get a 100 amateur astronomers around the world to put their telescopes on that. And the only thing we would need is to know the position of that object at that and the moment that they took their picture. Because uh, if, you know, we, we get a series of observations a Catalina Sky Survey across the sky, maybe four right? We draw a line between those four to try to figure out the orbit. Of course, I'm simplifying this, right? And, you know, that orbit is curving. So the more points we can put out there of positions, we can get much more precise with drawing that line and figuring out the orbit, right? Is it going to hit the earth or is it not? And sometimes, you know, we, we might only have hours to figure that out. Now, You say, well, if an asteroid's coming in and we only have hours, does it really matter? It does because most of the time, right? In fact, everything in human history, they're not big asteroids, they're small ones. And uh, I'm sure many people remember the one uh, in 2014 or 2012 in in Russia. At Chelyabinsk. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Chelyabinsk that exploded, and every dash cam in that part of the country got video of it. there were thousands of injuries from, from glass because the shock wave when that, that small asteroid exploded in the atmosphere, and the shock wave think about a bomb going off, blew out many, many windows and injured many people who were out there looking to see what the bright light in the sky was. Imagine if we could tell you, hey, this is going to happen. Don't go to your window, right? The shockwave's not a big deal. You know, it might blow your windows out, but just stay out of the way, right? You know, we, we could give warning of those kinds of things. And, and the more observations we have of an object like that, the more precise we can be about the point in time when it would come into the Earth's atmosphere. And, and there's a lot of this stuff out there. And some of it makes the news and, and, and some doesn't. Uh, one of the other surveys, Atlas, uh, which has telescopes in uh, Hawaii, I believe, they, uh, they discovered an asteroid last week or the week before. It was it already passed the Earth. And uh, I hope I'm not spilling any beans on this or freaking anybody out. So it was moving away from us already, but when they backed up the orbit, kind of tracked it out, it passed 400 kilometers from the Earth. So that is actually the closest asteroid on record as far as discovery. It was already by us because it was was coming from the direction of the sun, but so again, it was a small asteroid, size of like a, you know, half-size school bus or something, but still it's exciting right yeah
0: so that's you know doing observations like that and what that happens up on those facilities where you guys are at is kind of important so right. with all that amateur, being
1: the amateur contribution is is equally important right mm-hmm. we don't we don't have enough telescopes to keep track of this stuff
0: yeah and I, I know basic equipment like you got an eight inch telescope and a decent little camera which so many people do nowadays. I, I know everyone's after the pretty pictures and trying to get your APOD stuff, which is awesome. Um, but you'd be amazed how much like critical data that you could be providing for actual projects and be involved in projects with that basic equipment. That's right, that's right.
1: Light light is just uh, numbers, right? <laughs> we convert it to numbers and do the analysis and, and it doesn't take a big telescope to see a lot of the objects, especially the close ones. Mm-hmm. And, and keep in mind, right, that if you're an amateur, the camera is so much more sensitive than your eye. You know, obviously, the nebula behind me again, right, it's in color. You you can see that in an amateur telescope, but it's grayscale.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, eyes are just not that well, they're not that good at seeing low-light objects, especially color ones.
0: Yeah. So with like all, all s- that talk on um, the facility, we're already, I know we've only got a little bit of time left, but... Um, where where do you see Mount Lemon and the Sky Center going, you know, after the COVID era, and what's the future of the Sky Center?
1: Yeah, so I think that you know, short term, it's going to take a little while because people aren't traveling, and um, you know, there's we're hoping that a vaccine will widely be adopted and people will go get vaccinated, but in, until those things happen. A lot of what we're, we're working on is remote observation, so the, the telescopes right now, I should have mentioned this earlier, they're available um, for amateurs, uh, citizen scientists, some professionals around the world can, can purchase time and do that. So we have amateurs all over the world that uh, use our telescopes remotely. They log in from their home computer. Some of them, it's, they're halfway around the world, so it's daytime when it's night here. And they take data to make pretty pictures, like, like the one behind me. Other ones are, are looking for comets or taking light curves on asteroids or things like that. So as we get better with that, and this is the perfect opportunity, I, I think that will increasingly be um, a part of what the Sky Center does, is make these telescopes available to people interested in astrophotography, citizen science around the world. We've always hoped to do it, but this has really kind of spurred us and helped us Get off in that direction. Uh, you know, we, I think at the end of the day, we, we do want to get back to that in-person thing, though. So, you know, I think the future will hopefully look very much like where we were right before COVID, because there is there is something to that in-person experience, to being hands-on with a telescope, to turning the focus knob, you know, to, to seeing Saturn for the first time, right? And, and for many people, you know, we, we get a lot of tourists, you know, I'm, I'm luckier than most living in Tucson, Arizona, where we have reasonable lighting codes. And I, I live right at the base of the mountain. I can go outside on a moonless night in the right time of year, and I can faintly see the Milky Way over my house. But something like 70 or 75% of the U.S. population can't see the Milky Way anymore, right? I mean, there's, there's very few places, certainly east of the Mississippi, where you, you could even do that. So. I think returning to that is a very important part of of what we'll be doing is again, providing that in-person experience. Uh, You know, I imagine on the educational front where because of things that we're doing and learning now, we're going to also be developing programs for schools where uh, teachers can engage with our telescopes and collecting data and then using that in their classrooms. So, you know, those are some things that I think are, are in the short term, you know, we, uh, we never know where technology takes us, though. I expect a call from Kevin at Skywatcher in, you know, two years to say, "Hey, you won't believe this new camera that's being developed, and you know, it'll take us in a whole new direction." So.
0: Yeah. yeah, I know you guys have some of our scopes piggybacked on your big old things up there, so we do, and, and they are
1: they are quite popular. And
0: and actually, it's you know,
1: I should mention back to the outreach; they're important because when we you know, point a 32-inch telescope, say, at the Trifid Nebula, like you're seeing behind me, that's pretty much what's in the field of view of an eyepiece. But then when they can look through the, the six-inch skywatcher refractor that's, that's on the same target, they understand the context. And then we can point up in the sky exactly where that is. And so those different um, fields of view, right, also help them create an understanding of the night sky. They begin to get some sense of you know what one hundred eighty degrees is across the sky, and and how the motion of the sky works, and, and things like that. So it's you know it's it's not just beautiful looking through the refractor, but those those different views do help provide people a, a more complete understanding of what they're looking at.
0: Mm-hmm. No, and that's that's good to have the the different optic types too to you know, understand field of view and what fits and why there's different telescopes, because everybody's like, you know, what's the best telescope? And you guys having the mix of that. All right.
1: The answer is always the one you use, right? And, and, and we say that because people will ask us, right? Well, if I wanted to buy a telescope, and then we do tell them that. But the great thing about having those sky watchers as well is they see these amazing views, and they realize, you know, I could carry that out of my backyard, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't have to be mounted on a 32-inch telescope. It could be mounted on a nice small mountain. And so there is, Having the small telescopes also opens up the, the hobby for people that are interested in, in being amateur astronomers or that already have started along that path, and that's why they're there. You know, they're, they're ready to move on from their binoculars to a telescope. And, you know, it's, uh, I, love, I love looking through the 32-inch, through the 24-inch, but at the end of the day, I, truthfully, I'm happier sitting in the middle of the desert behind my own 5-inch telescope or my own 12-inch telescope, right, because it, it's mine and mm-hmm. i and i'm running it and it's you know not connected to a computer and it's just there's there's something very basic about that right and and being able to explore the night sky on my own and mm-hmm. you know and take things in a direction that i want to take them and, and i think that
0: um, you know it's anyway now so that's like i know you and i could go on forever about we've had long conversations in the desert that have sprawled late into the night about stuff like this so um, so now we've got ten minutes left. Um, if you guys have any questions right now, now's the time to throw them into the chat. Um, we'll still continue talking here. Um, but if there's a question that pops up, um, go ahead and throw that in the chat, and I can ask Alan for you guys. Um, if you guys want to know more about the the Sky Center, um, I'm gonna put the link in the description below if it's not already there. So if you're watching this now, it'll be there shortly. Uh, if you're watching this. In the future, on this recorded, um, the link will be down in the description below in the video. And that'll just link right to the Sky Center website so you can go learn about programs and availability and pricing and all that fun stuff. Um, but, Alan, if they're in Tucson, you guys actually have like a headquarter facility not far from the mountain.
1: We do. We do. And, and before I tell you about that, I'm, I'm laughing at myself because I see your telescopes all the time on ours and I'm just noticing the tagline under the your logo, be amazed. That's great. That's. Uh, I wish we'd thought of that. That's a perfect astronomy,
0: uh, copyrighted. Yeah. yeah,
1: but anyway, um, yeah. So we we do. We have a, a, a office. Our headquarters are actually right at the base of Mount Lemon. Um, if you're in the area, it's eighty eight ninety two East Tankaverty Road. You, you have to pass it if you're going up Mount Lemon. And so not only are our offices there, but we have a astronomy and science themed. Uh, gift shops. So a lot of the guests from our programs can stop on the way up and buy warm things, blankets and sweatshirts and stuff like that. Um, or after their program, uh, you know, lots of pastoral photography and, and children's books, all, all kinds of stuff. You know, where our goal with it really, besides the bottom line, is, is to keep people engaged and excited and, and you know, um, and stop by. We try to keep refreshing the, the different products that we carry and when uh, we are not in pandemic times, uh, we also do star parties there so that people in town or in the neighborhoods can come by and in the parking lot and, and look at stuff. And it's, it's nice because it gives us a presence in the community, right? Not, not everybody can come up to the mountain and do a five-hour program at, at high altitude. So, so it's nice. And we were just getting started uh, before COVID hit. We've been open less than, than six months. So uh, we've been recently talking about a new grand opening when when we can so
0: i'll be now but, i'd love to be down there that yeah if you
1: if uh, you go to the website then you can you'll see a link on the website uh, we have an online uh, store also so uh, not to be too pitchy about stuff but you know anything that people purchase yeah stays right with us there's
0: 100
1: of it stays at, at the sky center to fund outreach and education and keep the eyepieces clean that's what i like to say
0: so, yeah you know, um, and then if they wanted to learn cause, so last week we last week's episode was about uh, like holiday gift ideas and for the advanced imager, actually one of my ideas was getting time on remote telescopes and your facility was one of them um, all that is all that information on the website for how to obtain it that remotely? yeah, it's
1: all it's all on the website for sure and are
0: are both the 32 and the 24 available for that or is it just the 32? So
1: the 32 is primarily the one that's available. We, we do use the 24 remotely, but as of right now, we haven't uh, used it. We haven't turned it over for astrophotography.
0: Hmm.
1: And the reason is, is uh, twofold. One is that our camera and filters, are, everything's kind of set up on the 32. Uh, but the other reason is that we, we do have some science projects that take advantage of, of unsubscribed time on that telescope and um, one of them in particular, which is looking at transiting exoplanets, we can move them to the 24-inch uh, with their stuff pretty easily if we have astrophotographers using the 32-inch. So, uh, so just, it, it's just kind of, it's like dominoes, right? Everything falls in an order. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but but the 32-inch, right, is, is really, uh, it, it's a special scope for astrophotography. So I'm not an astrophotographer, but if I was going to do it, I'd want the 32
0: inch. I'd want that. 0. Well, there's, meter there's plenty of images up there on your website that show the capability of that site. And for those who haven't been there, um, it's about it's what 9100 feet. 9170. Yeah, you're up there quite a bit. Like if you're used to like Tucson, Arizona weather, it is completely different. I've been out there in the spring. And it's nice and warm, and too, we've done some big events at the University of Arizona where it's it's rather toasty during the day, but at night we've gone up to the mountain and it's it's cold. Yeah. So um, and as far as um, you know, uh, seeing what we call
1: the seeing conditions, right, the stability of the sky, it's a very very good site for astronomy. Um, so you know, Kevin, you you know this, right? Astronomers uh, measure the those seeing conditions, they quantify them in a measurement of arc seconds, right? So there's 360 degrees around the sky, right? 180 from horizon to horizon. Each degree is 60 arc minutes. Each arc minute is 60 arc seconds. So there's what, 3,600 arc seconds in a single degree. And so uh, typically on Mount Lemmon, or I shouldn't say typically, but we have many, many, many uh, nights up there where the seeing conditions are measured at less than one arc second.
0: uh, Which is, yeah. Uh, plus, meaning
1: separate objects that were, you know, that distance apart. And, um, you know, and and I don't know what the average is, but it's, you know, probably just over one arc second throughout the
0: year. It's maybe 1.2 arc seconds. It's, it is a very high quality astronomical site. I know that comes up with people who do astrophotography a lot is, oh, I need to get my guiding under one arc second. Well, half the time you're imaging in your backyard and the resolution of your system already is like 1.5 at best. So, right. A lot of yeah. times it won't resolve. But as you can see from the image behind Allen, that's on a 32-inch telescope. So you need to have such good seeing to, to support an instrument of that caliber. Um, so it's yeah, a sight like that. Yeah, on the 32-inch in particular
1: for remote astrophotography is that it's a friction drive system, right? There's, there aren't gears, so there's no periodic error uh, in the system in the same way. we And uh, we can routinely do... Uh, 300 second unguided exposures up there.
0: And that's out a 32-inch, like, F7.8 you're right. up there in focal length. Yes, for sure. For sure. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's definitely, uh,
1: um, you know, it's a, a dream job for an amateur astronomer, and I, and I feel really lucky because I know that like a good friend who I respect advised me before I took the job to be careful that sometimes you you make a hobby your job and then you burn out on the hobby.
0: And, uh, yeah. For me,
1: for me, if anything, it's it's probably kept me more excited, more involved because I can't not see some of the exciting things that are happening all the time.
0: Yeah. Um, real quick question: What CCD camera is currently in use on the thirty-two inch uh, Schulman telescope?
1: Ah. Uh, Well, that's a great question and I'm just going to get my facts right right now because you heard my disclaimer I'm not an astrophotographer right um so it is I'm actually going to go to our website to get the exact thing it's an SBIG Santa Barbara Instruments Group uh, but I just want to find the exact model for you of course you know the uh astrophotographers are going, well, there's only three good cameras to put on the uh, telescope observatory. It is a
0: SBIG STX
1: camera. You so guys, the I think it's a 16803
0: sensor. Yeah. You need exactly. to have big pixels on that big of a telescope. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so
1: we, we are actually looking um, over the next year to get a, another camera it'll be a CMOS camera because it does seem that the future of of cameras is going away those 16803s are no longer being made uh, and so we we want to at least get a little bit ahead of the curve so we get some understanding of how these new cameras work and can kind of commission it so that at the point when you know our camera dies and they all die at some point right that uh, that we're ready to roll or you know we we may start seeing astrophotographers who want the data from the newer cameras
0: so. mm-hmm. Um, next question: Is the the RA dome still up on the mountain?
1: The RA dome, uh, yes, not not the one that was in use um, with the instrument, but the tower is still there, and there's a uh, like a geodesic dome that's over it to protect the pier. So that that building will stay. Uh, we we have dreams and visions of of putting a telescope on the top of that pier. It would support a, a pretty good sized telescope. Um, but we would need to do it in a a way that also uh, is synergistic with the the natural environment and and the goals and visions of the Forest Service. You know, we we don't want to stick a four meter telescope up there that's visible from uh, Flagstaff, so. (laughs)
0: Um, Let's see, next question. Do you take 30 second snapshots through the 32 inch when you show the public? Uh, Sometimes.
1: It just depends what we're doing. It's, it's primarily a visual program, um, but often at the end of the program or, or on a really bright object, we will take a DSLR camera and put it in there and take a picture because it is also a learning opportunity for guests to understand something about the difference between the, the camera and their eye. Uh, we will more often do it, uh, any guest that brings a DSLR, we'll put it in the Skywatcher. Right, because that that way we can continue with the visual observing, which is what most people are there for, but also it gives guests an opportunity to get some some cool shots through the uh, through the refractor. Yeah,
0: yeah. If you guys go up there, they have an Esprit one hundred and fifty piggybacked. Yes, I said piggybacked um, on the the thirty-two inch. Um, it actually works out quite well, but the, ZF... the one hundred on the
1: twenty-four inch.
0: Okay, and the one hundred Esprit one hundred is going on the twenty-four. So. Uh, There's two Esprit's up on the mountaintop, or will be up on the mountaintop, but... um, And and we even have T-rings for various cameras because a lot of of people that come up just with cameras
1: are not astrophotographers, but it's a really great way to help them appreciate, you know, a small telescope and an off-the-shelf camera. You can start doing some really neat stuff from your backyard.
0: Well, very cool. Well, um, that pretty much wraps it up. Uh, If you guys have any questions... uh, for Alan or the Mount Lemmon Sky Center, you can either shoot them over to me and I can send them over to Alan or you can just contact the, the Sky Center through their website. Um, again, if it's not in the description below, I'll add that uh, later today for the description so it'll link you to their website. Um, again, uh, there is no webcast next week because it is Thanksgiving, so um, we'll We jump into the week after that if you have any further questions that i didn't get to cover you can email us at support at skywatcherusa.com and just title it what's up um and then we'll take a look at that but thank you very much for alan for taking the time out of your schedule i know you're pretty busy with a lot of this stuff um and you know thanks for everybody who's been watching yeah,
1: thanks for having me. This is this is important, and I'm really appreciative that Skywatcher is so
0: invested in astronomical outreach. We try, we want everybody have a good time. Um, real quick, Cameron, uh, they use teleview pieces on the telescopes up there. Um, that I can't answer because I've so um, not entirely, but for the most part, we have there you go. A pretty nice set of Explore Scientific, also. That's right. Both of them are great. So, uh, just to so you answer your question. All right, guys. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, Thanks, Alan. Um, If you guys need anything else, like I said, just email us at support at skywatcherusa.com. Title it What's Up. If you like it, go ahead and subscribe to our channel, and uh, we'll see you guys in two weeks at this point. No webcast next week, um, so it'll be the following Friday, the first Friday of December. We're talking about what's up in the December night skies, so uh, thank you very much. Have a good weekend, guys. Stay safe, and go look at the planets and the moon because they're up right now. So thank you very much and have a good weekend.
1: Thanks, Kevin.